Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Great Homeschool Conventions are the homeschooling events of the year, offering outstanding speakers, hundreds of workshops on today's top parenting and homeschooling topics and the largest homeschool curriculum exhibit halls in the United States of America. We believe passionately in the God-given right and responsibility of parents to train and educate their children. Welcome to Stories of Soul Food. Episode three already. Yeah. I'm Brian Cole here with... It's episode three. They should know that you're Brian Cole. I'm Andy Wilson. <laughs> That's Brian Cole. <laughs> you're right. Forget that part. And it's a fun fact of the day is that Brian Cole was born when I was in his father's fifth grade class. So, there you go. That is pretty cool. And then Brian's son was born when my son was in Brian's father's fifth grade class. Just to keep it weird. Pretty cool. Yeah. I think uh, small towns are ideal. Strange generational lapse in Moscow, Idaho. So yeah, Andy Wilson, Brian Cole, we're here to talk about stories, souls, and food. Stories are soul food. And we're going to talk about one of the big names, Tolkien, all things Tolkien. Yes, not Tolkien, by the way, Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> we're in Idaho, it's Tolkien. I don't know who says Tolkien, but they're not, not here to correct <laughs> it's us. It's not us. Not us. Also, Augustine, not Augustine, while we're oh, on it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that was one people love to snob about. Okay. So, we're talking about Tolkien. What are we talking about, Tolkien? Well, he's come up a couple times. So, you mentioned that you read him exclusively for a while as a, as a yes, kid. And then you mentioned that you moved on. But many things you move on from childhood, you never come back to because they were better in the past. Right. But Tolkien, is he that way? Not the case. Tolkien is still great. So, I thought so, that was worth, worth yeah. investigating a bit and finding out how, why is he so good for you as a kid? And as an adult. Your analogy there about things that you loved as a child not actually being that great uh, when you circle back around as an adult. Yeah. Yeah, that's true of many, many things. Lots of treats, cookies, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cookies candies, yeah. th- things that were exciting as children that are not at all interesting when you're an adult. Uh, movies, cartoons, there's a lot of stuff like that. But there's other things that age really, really well and they age right along with you. And Tolkien is definitely one of those things. I've really enjoyed watching my kids go through those stories at different ages. When did you have them start on that? Oh, I, I started reading the books to them pretty early. But it is, it's really funny because I'm watching my oldest daughter, who's just turned 17, starting to, to do laps through Tolkien, where she's reading Tolkien very, very differently since having begun writing and crafting her own stories. As a kid, she knew the stories. She enjoyed the stories. They were fun. Mm-hmm. She liked them. And by the way, we never watched the movies. We watched the first one and that was kind of it. Never watched the Hobbit movies. Was not interested yeah. in that because I don't even want that in my imagination. I didn't want it in my children's imaginations because I'm a snob when it comes to Tolkien. Yeah. I really am a Tolkien snob all the way, but it's been a blast to watch my older kids read Tolkien again for themselves at a slightly older age and to watch them get different stuff. Yeah, I guess generational lapse again, like you said, just yeah. lapse through. So, my daughter, who, so like I said, is 17 now, 
has found herself in big arguments with people about whether or not it's boring or whether or not it's slow or Fellowship yeah. of the Ring is too slow and things like that. Yeah. Things that she absolutely would have said when she was trying to read it for her first time on her own. Mm -hmm. And now she doesn't think, you know, at all. She finds the pace to be fantastic, the structure of the series to be fantastic, the character development. Yeah. Uh, all, all of it, like just the, the simmer. Yeah. The mystery, the slow grow. Uh, the slow grow of the, the scenery. I think people complain about the scenery a good bit. <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, I think it adds it adds that element. Well, the northernness term or or what? Yeah, it, the whole the, well the reality of it. The yeah, it's a it's a strange Middle Earth is a I mean, hobbits elves. If he'd cut out all the long walking bits, it wouldn't feel real. Which is, I think, what many pulp fantasy authors do. They cut out <laughs> everything that makes it real and yeah. And just like so, we're looking for perm like permanent a permanent state of climax. Yeah, and there's big, big peaks, big, big crescendos in Tolkien. So, but you need those long builds to get there. Yeah. So you earn Helm's Deep, and you earn the Ents marching off to oh, war. Man. Then you earn the Paths of the Dead. By the time those drum beats are hitting, uh, it's almost like if I kept playing that song by Kanye when the drum beat starts dropping and yeah. uh, later on in Sela. You know, just bam, bam. You yeah. Know, here they, here they come. Here's the ride of the Rohirrim, right. and here's paths yeah. of the dead, and yeah. big, big scenes, big set pieces, big battles, all that stuff. It's like, but the beginning is watching somebody come to a place where all the dominoes are set up and everything's being set up, but then it all yeah. starts to fall. So my daughter now going through it, she she enjoyed it. She enjoyed it back in the day when she was little, but she, her appreciation is extremely. Well, it's matured and the art has really pays off. So she's been surprised at how good it is. Yeah. You know, she, she read it. She heard it aloud when she was little. She read it when she was medium. Mm -hmm. And now that she's 17, she's reading it again for herself. I think like back to back yeah. times and is uh, well, when this, very, very into it. When this whole year started, Tolkien was what? Christy and I turned to and we started rereading that just to yeah. forget about the nonsense <laughs> and get into a trilogy for our times. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I had the same feeling because I hadn't read it since college, I think. And rereading it again as an adult, it just everything it works. Everything hits. It is good. It is, it is very good stuff. And you're right. This year, Tolkien is great. To our theme, Tolkien's great soul food for 2020. Yeah. You think you have it bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess, so the heavy metal approach where you just double bass drums nonstop from the very beginning doesn't actually feed you in any way that's sustainable. Right. I like, I like big set pieces. I like action. I really do. And I like, but, I, but one of the things that I love about Tolkien that I think is in every chapter and every scene and exists for every character and every nation and every landscape in different ways comes in the paths of the dead when they're walking through the darkness mm -hmm. you know, the horses are scared yeah you know, like they, nobody wants to be in there aragorn is you know he, he doesn't care he's the only mm -hmm. one who know he's not even afraid of the dead the dead answer to him which is side note very old testament moses calling down the angel of death yeah. The good guys control the dead. Controlling an army of the dead as opposed to the bad guys controlling an army of the dead is very Moses. Uh, but in the paths of the dead, 
they walk past a door that's sealed and there's a skeleton in armor such a good scene leaned up against this door and the all the scratch marks from his fingernails and his sword is broken he broke he's broken on the door tried to hack his way through yep. and here's this guy who died outside this door however long ago and you stand there for a second and then you move on yeah and tolkien just moves the story past it and so he gives this impression of dimensionality there's any number of tributaries that he could turn into there's any number of right. narratives and characters and you know side stories and spin-offs that he just is not distracted by so you could spend the entire time with tom bombadil but you don't and you could right uh you could get all you could do a deep dive and where are the ant wives but you don't yeah and so i've always i've always tried to imitate that in my own writing because i really appreciate that it's something that exists in god's story uh, everywhere everywhere we turn there's backstory yeah then there's other narratives crossing our own that we don't get to read lewis talks about it's a concept they both shared lewis always talks about about it with aslan when aslan is saying that's another story that's not your story yeah leave that one be that's not your story <laughs> and he's always yeah cory aiken is that is that you know, yeah. the magician story the fallen star yep the fallen star and and uh when, you, when he's answering questions about other characters from the Pevensies who are, yeah. you know, when they ask questions. Inquisitive as you yeah. be, yeah. He says, Those, that's not for you. That's, that's their story. Uh, and so that's the way Lewis does it. But Tolkien has that depth. Uh, he has that dimensionality where you could go any direction. So just for people who don't know about Tolkien. Yeah. Did Tolkien just write that character and then not know who it is, the skeleton outside the door? No, no. No, no, he figured everything out. He did, he did write characters that he didn't know who they were when he wrote them, but he always figured them out. So there's absolutely a full narrative arc behind every... Yeah, yeah. When, he, when he wrote the Nazgul, he didn't know what they were. The first Black Rider in Fellowship of the Ring showed up and he was terrified, had no idea what this Black Rider was. And then, of course, he, he built this massive mythology. To explain... Around behind the Nazgul and the kings and the rings of power and everything else. Right. He fleshed it out. The so people you know... Saw you know, on, know yeah. And Tolkien knew what was behind that door and what the story was, and he did not tell you. And he just moved it along. And that can be infuriating for a reader, but it also has such a powerful uh, imaginative touch as you, as you ride past other stories. And it really helps when you, you know, head through your, own, through your own existence. It's that way. Every yeah. single car, think, think about how complex God's storytelling is. Every single car you've ever passed on a road in your entire life has been heading somewhere <laughs> yeah. the, with people in it, with a plan, with backstories, with hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and yeah. griefs, and sorrows. Everybody, they all have it. And you just whip past them and go on right. your own story. God has us on our own stories. And waking up to these lateral moves, waking up to these, these tributaries and to the narratives of others is well, it's kind of terrifying and overwhelming and awesome all at once. You were talking about evangelism a while ago with that idea of planting seeds and opening right. eyes and not knowing, not knowing what's going to happen with that story. But almost right. we in our lives with faithfulness are leaving those skeletons outside the doors <laughs> right. for other people walking by. Yeah. Which, you know, I think we tend to think of ourselves as the Aragorns. But also, there's a chance. Are you? Are you? The, are, you the, are you the guy dead at the door? <laughs> <laughs> it's a more depressing than I wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. As Johnny Appleseed approach, if you are just planting seeds, 
you have no idea if in 50 years somebody is going to like that apple tree is going to make it the difference a life or death difference yeah for somebody you'll never see never know you don't know their yeah. story uh you just put a seed in the ground and you walked on yeah you hand out and i think we talked about it in terms of uh the title of our podcast with stories or soul food when you're trying to as somebody curating narrative for readers especially young readers as somebody who tries to write stories for young readers you're handing out meals yeah and you, it's so very temporary but not at all because the the people that you're feeding are immortal they are going to live forever yeah they're never going to die they're never going to end their spirit their soul is never going to just be you know no more they will right. continue to exist until the end of time and so touching touching people's narrative touching their souls touching their imaginations with narrative meals can have really long-term effects downstream consequences and all these side stories that we will never get to see the end of. So talk about that more as you're writing your own book. I watched my son. He, he just started. So he just listened to the door before. We won't do any okay. spoilers, but watching <laughs> Let's him. Let's do all the spoilers. <laughs> yeah. So reading Andy Wilson for the first time, he'd gone all the way through the 100 Cupboard series and then, and then did Door Before and started to find out connections between multiple things that I told yeah. him about. And that was a pretty cool moment for him. So can you talk about how you, do you plan that all out ahead of time? Are you Tolkien-esque in the way? Some, in some ways, yeah. I would say I'm Tolkien-esque, but I'm a little more impressionistic. So I have known, for example, I've known big things. I mean, when I wrote the 100 Cupboards trilogy, I knew there was going to be 100 cupboards <laughs> and I nice. picked which worlds they would go to. And some of them go to the same world, different parts of the same world. But I picked locations and spots. For all 100? All of them. In different spots in mythology, history, alter alternate timelines. Like so, Battle of Actium, but in a stuck temporal loop uh, in Dandelion Fire. But I mapped it out. I mapped out all 99 magical doors and where they went. Like what happens when you walk through that door? What's on the other side? I mapped it all out and I know I had to know where they would connect and then most of them I didn't use, but they're just still there. And that was incidentally to, thanks for bringing that up because that is in fact inspired heavily by the effect on my imagination that that single door had in Tolkien, that door that was unopened. So oh, the wow. concept, the concept of unopened doors, doors that could be opened but have not yet been opened doors we have not explored because we're busy and we're on an adventure and we really have to solve this right now and so like that can wait for wait for just a dull saturday you know yeah. and it won't be oh, dull wow. at all it'll just be another adventure right but we can't um, we can't look through that right now we're too busy on our own mission so you're telling me there's 85 more doors or so, <laughs> something that i that I, we yeah, have to figure a, out <laughs> i mean i drew a map i labeled them all i had a notation of destination, shorthand, destination, time mm -hmm. that I wrote out with them all. The publisher ended up printing a version of that in the front of the book. And so, yeah, it was, I, I love doing it. I love opening them, opening these doors, but I also loved the sense of potential. Yeah. Like that you've not exhausted it. The yeah. lemon has not been fully squeezed, you know? So Tolkien spent a lot of his life revising and trying to, trying to squeeze every last drop out, right? right? So you, that's what you mean by impressionistic, I guess, is yeah, that you exactly. don't, you don't so feel I'm the not, need. I'm not intending to publish a enormous volume of all the backstory. I'm, I'm not intending an encyclopedia yeah. 
but I have, you know, I am picking up threads and I am tying them all together. All my novels have been written in the same universe, this one. <laughs> and right. so they all, so they all so you connect. So you just mean they, they all are consistent. They all can yeah. work together. All my so. novels are, are in, internally coherent. So Boys of Blur in the swamps of Florida, you pay attention closely and you see echoes gotcha. of Ashtown, the Ashtown Burial Series. You're like, oh, this exists in the same kind of universe. This is, this is the same. Here's some kids on an adventure with creatures that are very similar to creatures that other characters are dealing with elsewhere and different kinds of powers elsewhere. Same thing with uh, 100 Cupboards. 100 Cupboards, more directly, the protagonist of the 100 Cupboards trilogy are cousins of the protagonists of the Ashdown Burial series. There's no way that's true with Lee Pike, though, is there? Uh, Lee Pike, yeah, Lee Pike is in the same. Okay. All yeah. right. I guess I got to return. I got to yeah. dig, dig a little deeper. So it's, <laughs> and actually, as I'm publishing the Silent Bells and Serial, too, just the last chapter was very Lee Pike in terms of like the, the concept of the ancients having actually discovered the new world yeah. long, long ago. Contiki style. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, Ashtown is, is kind of, you know, to me, Ashtown's like the, the star. It's the sun and the solar system. And there's these other stories that, and cupboards is a big one that all kind of work coherently with it. But it's, you know, if you think of, if you, it's not that hard. If you think about uh, Lewis and Narnia, you could ask, does that hideous strength, does the space trilogy exist in the same world as Narnia? Oh, for sure. It's like yeah. easily. Yeah. It's not sure. Why, why wouldn't it? There's no problem because they went through a wardrobe into another world. So 100 cupboards, this world, Kansas, exists in Ashtown. Yeah. 100 cupboards is set in Kansas where they find all these doors and they discover these other worlds linked in Kansas, but Ashtown starts in Wisconsin and readers know that Kansas and Wisconsin are in the same world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, for sure. And then I just pull it tighter with the protagonists have a familial relationship and there's backstory. And imaginatively, like you and Tolkien were both, well, I guess I should ask you, Tolkien said he's trying to capture English air and write for English people, which by the way, he called the Northwest, which I find kind of funny because yep. here we are in <laughs> the other Northwest. Were you trying to do that too with, I think you've talked about this before, but were you trying yeah. to write a, write a. Well, thanks, thanks to Tolkien. And it's not a bad thing, but thanks to Tolkien, most kids think now, if you are going to go on a magical adventure, it has to be in England. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, England has gotten very hoity about the fact that they, they do banking men's clothing. <laughs> and, and fantasy <laughs> and children's novels <laughs> like that's it yeah like th these are our things and you know <laughs> once they did the world cup but hey mm. <laughs> uh, not recently yeah um, <laughs> a little football slash yeah. soccer but yeah men's, men's suits tailors saville row tolkien uh and and some banking uh of course the yeah right MT, MT. yeah MT? the empire was there yeah but uh basically Tolkien was so definitive and so emphatic in how much he impacted the English-speaking world and the whole world, but especially the English-speaking world. And then Lewis came in, you know, and he hit heavy as well. And then lap a generation and then J.K. Rowling goes. It's just, it's no surprise they think that way. So it's easy for kids to think like, man, I should be in another magical place that has trains that we actually ride places and boarding gotcha. school and yeah that, and that's part of the magic right so 
things that are not part of the magic, things that are just part of the social structure over there become magical for kids. Like boarding school. Yeah, over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which is awful. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> yeah terrible. Yeah. So, but it's, it's part of this strange foreign world and it gets all the, the patina of magic along with everything else. So, I wanted to do the same thing for kids wherever they are. I wanted to make their own backyards, magical gateways. I wanted them to see the grass as magical, the sun, the moon, the wind, wheat fields, baseball, barbecue, big red barns. Uh, I wanted all of that to have this, to sit there and own the same place in the story that trains and you know, London, the Londonness of the beginning of Harry Potter has. Okay. So, you know, I so wanted imagine, that, imagine soul food, but yeah. with a different flavor. Yeah. So, Mythic Americana, I wanted to say, I'm not going to write a British story. I, I really appreciate those British stories a lot. Right. But I'm going to write one that uh, is something I can understand and relate to and connect, but I want to awaken and enliven the imaginations of my readers to their own world. I am very anti-escapism yeah. uh, in this way, and I would rather them walk outside and stare at their backyard with wide eyes about what a wild place we all live in, yeah. rather than go down in their basements and wear costumes and play games with dice. Yeah. Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with playing a game with dice or wearing a costume sometimes. However, <laughs> yeah, there's that's more not what life. I want. Yeah. Like, so if if kids do that, my goal is not to get a bunch of a bunch of readers to be playing games with dice in basements. Yeah, I want them to be climbing trees. I want them to be when they're out when they're out playing baseball. Yeah, I want them smelling the wind. I want them climbing around in barns and looking at creeks. And if they're in the city, I want them looking at the hustle and the bustle and the moon rising over the over the skyline. Yeah, in the swamp, looking out for yeah. the monsters. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So. Tolkien and Lewis and rallying after them were so successful that uh, it's easy for them to be the definitive flavor. And I felt like we do need some great hamburgers, just yeah. some great steaks, some great American cuisine when it came to fantasy. Right. And not, not just that old northern thing that they were chasing as much as I do love it. So that was the, kind of the motivation there to chase the same soul, chase that soul, chase that beating heart. But you know, and flesh it differently. What would Tolkien think of your approach? Hmm. What would Tolkien think of my approach? Yeah. I actually think Lewis would be more appreciative of it. I think Tolkien could be made to be appreciative of it, but he was far more curmudgeonly. Gotcha. So, about everything, including Lewis's writing. So, the thing that they talk about, they talk about, uh, they're both very uh, Neoplatonistic, very Aristotelian in how they thought about some things. So. Lewis in his letters talks about movie adaptations and he talks about the problem of movie adaptations is that they think that the same kind of fear is interchangeable, like threat, duress is interchangeable, that being chased by a monster is the same thing as being chased by a car or death by cold would be the same thing as being buried alive. You know, it's like that's, he said, film adaptations tend to just swap in different duress duress mm -hmm. for duress they don't bother to try to echo the type of fear the type of duress at an essential level at uh like a really core level that they enflesh differently and the adaptation could happen there could be an adaptation but they've kept the seed they kept the core so i think that that's something i've done where i have worked to keep that core so the feeling of scraping plaster off in your you know, farmhouse in Kansas in 100 cupboards, chipping away that plaster. 
uh, the feeling of being up there in that attic and finding these tiny doors, these tiny different doors that connect to different worlds is very similar in type, very similar in soul to the wood between the worlds. Then the rings, you know, the green and yellow rings of Magician's Nephew. It's very similar in type to the wardrobe. Yeah, pushing through those fur coats. Not, and, yeah. yeah, but it's not similar to Tolkien. Tolkien just starts with an alternative England and an alternative mythology. So if I was going to, so my, my stuff is not similar there. Now the, the similarities come with particular personalities or particular characters. Frank, Fat Fairy uh, is a very Tolkien-esque kind of character. I mentioned the, the door and the paths of the dead. And the con like the sensation of walking past a door and leaving it unopened because the adventures carried you you know carried you along. That's something I intentionally echoed in 100 cupboards. But those are little details, character imitations, conceits. But at the beating heart, I am a fanboy of Tolkien, a lover of Tolkien who wrote something that's far more an American version of what Lewis did. You know, where Lewis spoke into everyday childhood in England of his, of his time, and I've spoken into everyday childhood in America of my time. Yeah. And I've intentionally bounced around. So I've done Boys of Blur in the swamps of Florida, Outlaws of Time in the Southwest, Arizona, uh, and, and bounced up into Seattle for some of it. Wisconsin, the upper Midwest for Ashtown, Kansas yeah. with 100 cupboards, bounced into California with Door Before. Yeah. I've intentionally wandered the whole continent and I'm trying not to go back to the same places. I want to activate and awaken imaginations in all these. Because people live everywhere. everywhere. You, don't, yeah. you don't need to be in yeah. England or at Hogwarts. In exactly. Order. exactly. <laughs> so, and that's, Lewis started with kids who were just, you know, they're just kids. They're just kids in England at his time, at that moment in history. And so that's what I did. I did yeah. with that. The same thing with American kids. But yeah, I, I totally... I'm totally downstream from both of them artistically. And I think that Tolkien would have more of a problem with what I do because he wants more escapism and more true mythology without cross connection to the real. Yeah. And I also really love just magical realism and Borges and what a lot of the Latin American writers have done in terms of- Yeah. When you cross that border yeah. into something that's crazy, yeah. I feel like that feeling is something- you can't bottle, but when right. it happens, yeah. you feel that and Pierce, it's exciting. Piercing the veil between the mundane yeah. and the overlooked, the overlooked and the mundane and the magical yeah. uh, is, is something that's really fun to try to accomplish. And that is not something Tolkien would do. He actually, well, correction, he imported a ton of mundane into Middle Earth. Right. So he did it in reverse. You know, the hobbits love, they're always hungry. They always are looking yeah. to smoke. <laughs> yeah. know, it's like, yeah. these guys are smoking pipes, talking, Bats. constantly hungry. They want baths, yeah, hot baths. Yeah, they want hot baths and pipes, food, hunger. He takes those very basic things and he shoves them in there, makes sure they're there. So he takes the real world with him to Middle Earth, but he doesn't do what I try to do or what Lewis tried to do. That's pretty Christian at its heart, isn't it? To show the point where the mundane meets or is affected by the miraculous. It seems like Easter and Christmas. Yeah. Are at the heart of what we believe and why we well, believe. Well, it's every, it. it's all around us. It's everywhere, yeah. and yes, it's very much Christianity. The concept of the spoken world, the concept that God is telling a story, that the infinite Word spoke and there was light, and things began to come into existence that were His speech. 
that we live in his speech, which means that everything around us is incarnation. It's all lowercase i, little i, incarnation. And the incarnation was the thing that every other thing promises. Yeah. Like everything is a prophecy of the incarnation. All these words made flesh, every word made flesh, all lead into the word made flesh. So yeah, there's, there's power and miracle in every single thing around us. And it's not, it's not chaos. It's not random. It's not out of control. It's all crafted. And that is, that is very, very Christian and you can't get it without Christianity. Okay. So there's kind of two directions we can go from here. Tolkien got to take shots at you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to take any shots at Tolkien or would it be more helpful to discuss? Because I think a lot of people enjoy, well, like I did as a junior high kid watching the Tolkien movies. They just shouldn't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there we go. I'll take shots. I'm happy to take shots. Okay. So, turnabout's fair play. What, what do you think Tolkien could have done better or what, uh, where did he fall short, I guess? That's a really interesting question. There's one big area I think that he just dodged and he should not have. And I don't know, I don't know why. Okay. I'm, in, I, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I, I know there would have been a great conversation. I know there'd be a great conversation over a pint and I'm sure he has reasons. But I think that uh, for all the reality of his kingdoms and Middle Earth, there is no religion in any of them. There are no priests anywhere, right? And that's because he, contrary to what he would ever admit or what he would ever say, went allegorical with his wizards and with Gandalf. Yeah. So he went angelic with Gandalf. Gandalf is a type of angel. He's, he's an angel, has the authority of, a, uh, of an archangel. So. And of course, Tolkien, Tolkien gives world. it fancy names. Yeah. Yeah. But in Tolkien's world, Gandalf has, holds the place of, that Michael holds here, the archangel holds here. He's more that than he is a priest. Yeah. Like he's not, he's not an intermediary. He's not somebody restoring fellowship between fallen creatures struggling and their creator. You know, he's not, yeah. Yeah, he's, no, not no, he's not that at all. Yeah. Um, and so you have Saruman no religion. The Ents, no religion. The Hobbits, they have no organized religion. Even the Elves, no organized religion. Huh. This old Norse civilization of Rohan, uh -huh. there's no priest in the court. Yeah. No organized religion. Gondor, no high priest in Minas Tirith. So, so why couldn't he just leave that out, I guess? Right. It's, well, the reason why you can't leave it out is it's like trying to create a fantasy creature. And deciding to leave out the head and the heart. Right. So, it's you know, not it's like, real. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a huge absence. Right. It's an enormous absence. And he pre do you think he imported that all? Because as a faithful Christian himself, do you think he's importing that? Uh, yeah. He definitely assumed it. Yeah. So, okay, he's got, he's got goodness. Word, yeah. He's got righteousness. He's got this archangel type in Gandalf. But so here, here's my complaint, lest you Tolkien fans start to get stressed out and defensive because <laughs> I love the books. But imagine, in, imagine with me, if you will, go with me on this little imaginary trek. How amazing would it be to read those characters crafted by Tolkien? How amazing would it be to see different iterations of faith and religion unique to those different peoples, races? You know, it's like when we when you get we get to Galadriel to see how the elves present themselves to their maker, to see how they approach it, and to see that character as done by Tolkien, as crafted by Tolkien, would have been mind blowing. 
The character of a little hobbit priest would be hilarious. The way the hobbits tried to have their formal religion would have been amazing. Yeah. Rohan, like that character, like this Norse- A medieval, yeah. Some kind of Norse medieval take on faith and religion, like a through thread. I, I think he just decided to avoid it because he did not want to riff on God. So he was willing to riff on angels and riff on anything else. He wasn't willing to riff on God. And he, and he has been very high church and Catholic. I don't think he was willing to riff on the church. Mm, you know, I think he just, okay. I think he just kind of steered clear of that completely. But given his abilities, his imaginative abilities and his, his abilities as a writer and as uh, in perception of the human psyche, sociological, everything, every, everything. So given his perception into kingdoms, individuals, everything. I would pay a lot of money to read The Lord of the Rings with that piece in, crafted by him. Oh, man. I would, well, I didn't even know I would, but now I would. So, that's where well. I'd say like Tolkien fans can, can get really defensive. Lewis fans too, where it's like he did no wrong. They want to treat it like it's scripture. But this is just a fudge. He just skipped it. He just kind of hopped over it and ignored it. And I mean, when you look at all the other characters, the fictional priests that we have, they're bad news not not yeah. in tolkien but everywhere they're generally yeah, they're just, the weakest it's, it's clearly a place where authors get lazy yeah the pastors right? are, are are weak so i'm not saying like there's one church and we have like there's a holy catholic church and there's priests for that church in each of these different little parishes the shire and rohan i think that the the approach to religion in rohan and the the political friction created by the power structure of a faith in Rohan and their hatred of the, the faith structure in Gondor and that factoring in to all those, yeah. those loyalties and alliances and, and other rivalries that happen. Another thing about the Russian Orthodox versus the Greek Orthodox <laughs> versus the Coptic versus, <laughs> you know, versus the fundamentalist Baptists. And like yeah. we have, we've got a lot of different, this is, this is the world. This is how it is. So when you have races and nations, you have infrastructure built up around faith and religion as well. Uh, and very, very dark stuff too. So where are the priests of Sauron? Where are the priests of Mordor? Yeah. How is that done? So it's this, it's this gap. And I think he'd, he could easily justify what he did. Obviously, the book succeeded without it. But I would love to hear him try to explain why. And I would love to have a shot to get in my, my little time machine and have a shot to convince him to do otherwise like to fill in the head and the heart of all of these different peoples and nations. And if he'd done that, that would be awesome. And it is actually something that I've been very conscious of in my own writing. So with even with uh, cupboards and dandelion fire, like we get to another world and there's a priest and there's a christening in this other world. You know, it's like uh -huh. this kid was lost before, before he was christened. And so now that he's back in this other world, he's got to get christened. That's the way the world is. You can't go anywhere and, and uh, not encounter people's solutions to the great big questions. And the biggest one being, how do we access God? Lewis did it with Tash. Yeah. Uh, Lewis had the nerve to do it. And, and I love it. Uh, it's so good. You and know, it makes people it. so mad. It does, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and scared. I mean, what a character. That's yeah. so good for my kids. Like, you know, we've yeah. been through Lewis twice now and read, <laughs> reading Tash. Yep. The Kallerman God is, is uh, terrifying and real, not yeah, fake, no, real. for sure. And then he also stresses people out by saving, by saving one of the Telmarines. Yep. <laughs> he went through the door though. 
Yeah, where it's, yeah, they do, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we won't get into that today. But so yeah, Tolkien, that's my one big complaint about the Lord of the Rings is it's got this absence and it's an absence that does not destroy the series at all, but it's an absence. I love the series enough that it's an absence. I would love to see a genius like Tolkien set his hand to that and write those characters and those structures. Uh, the cathedral in Minas Tirith would be amazing to see him describe. The yeah. character, that archbishop, whoever that was and whatever he was called in Tolkien's world, mm. standing next to Denethor, facing off against Gandalf, I would love to see. Yeah. And we'll never get to, unless Tolkien's working on it currently. In which, <laughs> which, in which case, we got another right. thing to I look, look forward to. <laughs> yes, I look forward to it. Hopefully, he's been writing for some time now. Oh, man. <laughs> well, that's fun. I don't, I don't think we really need to go anywhere else. Okay, there we go. I love Tolkien. The complaint about that is because I love Tolkien. Right. Out of love. Yeah. Out of affection, out of desire for more. Yeah. As every good reader should have. Yeah. I think you've gotten pr plenty of messages about that. You yeah, want give more. Give me more. Yes. So there we go. Stories also are soul food. That's our, our take, our engagement with Tolkien. Yeah. Peace out. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food podcast. If you enjoyed that episode and you're longing for adventure, some mischief, what about some sandwiches? Tag along with one sneaky ninja in N.D. Wilson's Hello Ninja. It's global bedtime fun for little ninjas that's also a Netflix original. Written by N.D. Wilson and gorgeously illustrated by Boris Dickinson. Check it out at HelloNinjaBook.com, where you can also find the second book in the series, Hello Ninja, Hello Georgie, as well as the coloring book. <laughs>